Interesting that I always call it the, the wrath of the law is revealed by the police officer that pulls you over when you did something wrong. Isn't that true? When we talk about this scripture today that we're going to deal with, what we recognize is that the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven is, is, a, is a wrath, a result, a natural consequence that takes place in a variety of ways at a variety of times, but not always instantly. How many of you have broken the law driving your car and did not get a ticket? Bingo. 100%. Wow. You see, God's mercy is so wonderful that even his wrath is not shown in a variety of times. God has mercy on us, and we don't always get caught. Hey, it's not that he doesn't know. He simply, at various times, is able, for some unknown reason, to not force upon us the natural consequence of our bad behavior. Today we're in Romans chapter 1, so I want you to turn there. And we're in the second part of this book of Romans as we begin our study. Last week, Pastor Eric began to share with us about an understanding of the history of Romans itself, the city, the people, the situation in relationship to the church, how the church was made up of primarily Gentile Christians because the Jewish Christians had been sent away and now they've come back. And Paul is responding to them and trying to help them understand how they're supposed to relate one to another and what the truth is about this good news. So he opens up the text and he begins laying out this primary truth. And he says that God imparts his righteousness to us as we receive his gift of grace and live by faith in him who died for my sin. Paul makes this very, very, very clear. He wants to have no question in the mind of any of those who are listening to his letter of who he is in relationship to his walk with God and his understanding of the reality, the truth of grace provided and revealed to us. Now, remember, he's writing this letter to a Roman church that's never met him. He's never been here. He's been asked to write this letter, and so he has to clarify some issues and struggles that are taking place within this church. So the good news is that we no longer have to be concerned about living up to our potential and being dismayed by our inability to do so. You see, the law cries out and it shows us our faults and our failures, but it was not and it never will be the enabler, the one who can give us the ability to overcome our deficiencies. So the good news is that grace does not show up in that way. Grace is about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So I'm not ashamed of the fact that I have to depend upon him, that he is my crutch, that he is that which I depend upon 100%. In fact, I rejoice in it. I don't try to show off my righteousness, my abilities, my understanding, my intellect, 
Instead, I declare the grace of Jesus and how it's worked and continues to work in my life. In my weakness, his strength is declared. So God imparts his righteousness to us as we receive his gift of grace and we live by faith in him who died for my sin. And that's the base. So that was last week. That's the base that we begin to build on. Paul goes on to teach this week about God's revelation to us in relationship to life and the struggles of life and living through a variety of different issues, relationships, a variety of other areas that we have to deal with. See, he tells us that in the struggle of life, God provides for us clear direction in relationship to how we should live. But that most of us struggle with that revelation from God, that voice where he speaks to us. And instead, we choose to refuse to accept his truth. And we begin to write our own lies. And then to live in accordance with those writings that we've placed down ourselves. It's kind of like our own gospel. We get to write our own good news. And he's going to talk about how that comes into play. But let's turn into Romans chapter 1, and we're starting with verse 18. Verse 18, he says, the wrath of God. Verse 18 of chapter 1, the book of Romans. So if you've got your Bibles, you do want to be there, or your phones, or whatever you work with. Okay, so the wrath of God is revealed against all the godlessness, the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by this wickedness. Since what has been made known about God is plain to them. Because God made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So people find themselves without excuse. Father, we pray that you will clarify to us this truth, that you'll help us to understand it, to respond to it, to walk with it, and to enjoy it. As we recognize what you've done and what your son provides for us. Lead us through this understanding. We ask that Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. See, it's it's often true when we read God's word. The first time we read it, we misunderstand what it is that God is saying. The text is actually not so much a declaration of judgment needed on those who refuse to respond to God. Instead, it's actually a declaration of mercy that's required for all who live in this broken world that's filled with broken people who keep thinking we can fix ourselves. We can fix this. We can make it work. We can put it back together. Paul is trying to tell us you're broken and you can't fix yourself. Nobody can. Nobody ever will be able to. But God remedies this problem by providing Jesus as the super glue of life. Right? He makes us come back together and you can't even see the broken areas. That's how remarkable it is. For he is the creator and he has the ability to bring us into this born again experience. So he first off says the wrath of God is being revealed Uh, From heaven, it's being revealed. You need to focus on that instead of the word wrath. Uh, The word word used here is actually apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. So it's being revealed, this 
incredible response of God, this cry of God is revealed to us from heaven apocalyptically. So it's in this uh, constantly, oh, there it goes. Oh, there's some more. There's some more. There's some more. A variety of ways that God reveals himself to us. Earlier, he talked about how Jesus' righteousness is given to us and revealed to us. Now God's wrath is revealed or justice is brought forth. He's saying those who suppress the truth with a lie are the ones that he's focusing on. The word suppressed actually means to to hold in prison. To suppress something, to hold it in prison, to hide it from somebody else. So people hide the truth and God forces them to acknowledge it. They say, no, this isn't true. This is okay. And God forces them to acknowledge it by revealing that truth through his wrath in specific ways. Ways of consequences and interactions of God himself and relationships that we have one with another. Or to put it another way, your sin will expose you sooner or later. It'll be seen, it'll be recognized, and you will have to deal with the consequences. Or my favorite thing is, if you make your bed, you're going to have to lie in it. That's the wrath of God. He's laid it out for us. And he said, if you do this, this will happen. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you've loved me. It doesn't matter how, how, whether you're a pastor. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are. If you do these things, there will be consequences. That's the wrath of God being declared to us. A few years ago, I was at Saddleback Church. I was listening to this marvelous presentator. He was an intriguing person, an excellent speaker. And as he got through, I was, I was like, wow, this guy knows God, and yet he's in the midst of this Hollywood thing, and he's desiring to present Jesus to the entire world. The person's name was Mel Gibson. I was really very, very I'm not easily impressed, folks. I'm not, really not. I was impressed by his presentation, what he had to say. And then I was even more impressed as I saw the movie that he had put together called The Passion of Christ. It was truly unbelievable. It was incredible in this day and age for someone to do that. I was like, I remember going to the show and walking out stunned and realizing at the end of the show, I hadn't heard one word of English. It was all subtitles. But I was so captivated by this presentation of Jesus and a recognition of my own sin and the need of someone to give his life for me, so overwhelmed by it that I didn't even hear these Aramaic words. Instead, I heard English spoken as it was written. It was amazing. I was like, whoa, this is incredible. The response of Hollywood was anger. Anger, rejection. But the response of the people was overwhelming. I don't know if you realize it or not, but its gross income was $612 million. $612 million to watch Jesus be put to death on the cross. This was the 25th highest grossing film in the history of the world. Now, 
you don't go see it twice. That's how unnerving it was. So this was not a case of, oh, well, keep, people keep going back to see Star Wars two and three and four times. No, everybody saw it once. Which should tell you the impact upon the world this had. But the impact upon the world was even greater upon Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, after presenting this, what he said for years and years and years and years, it was his vision. And putting this together, his life entirely fell apart fell apart his statement was for all these years I had not touched any alcohol and suddenly I stood there I was at the bar and I tossed this down and my whole life changed everything everything it seemed like the wrath of God was upon him in such a powerful wealth that he couldn't understand it. And the stronger he got himself into trouble, the more it was revealed, the more difficult it came for him to deal with his own life. He lost his family. He lost his income. He lost his identity. He lost his vocation. He was embarrassed before the entire world to this day. And overwhelmed with, what have I done? And do not think for a minute that this does not have a great deal to do with his desire to present the good news of God's grace. But because he'd made certain choices following that, the consequences of God's wrath came upon him. His life. You see, this wrath is a calm, undeviating purpose of God that makes sure that you understand the connection between sin and consequence. God's wrath is a relentless opposition to all that would distort and destroy truth and replace it with what it calls here the lie. It's not so much God's anger as it is God's cry of, look out, before you hit the wall. Before you involve yourself in these areas of sin that will bring destruction to you. God's cry to us is, we must learn to humble ourselves and to, as Mel Gibson uses his terminology, hug the cactus. You have to learn to hug your cactus, to recognize your weakness and your inability, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that when you do that, when you recognize that and humble yourself to that place, then God will renew you and He will enable you. But it still takes time. You see, we live by grace, by faith in God's revealed truth, not the lies of our culture that we continue to hit upon. Now, all of us know that Hollywood is not a culture of grace, right? Hollywood is a culture of what did you do for me today, lately, exactly. This is a culture of negativity. It's, it's a culture that is truly uh, powerfully responsive in a horrible way. So it was shocking, even to myself, when grace revealed itself in a special time in 2011 as Robert Downey Jr. stands before a group of people while he was giving one of the greatest awards that could ever be given to any actor. And he stands there and he says, I've asked 
a special person to present this honor to me. And the person he asked to present the honor was, guess, Mel Gibson. He asked Mel to present to him this award. He was allowed to choose the person who was doing it. A few things he could do. And his ceremony takes place about a year after Mel's most recent failing. And he has become the number one pariah in Hollywood. He is blacklisted. He is looked upon with disgust. And very few people will have anything to do with him. At the same time, here's Robert Downey at the height of his popularity. He is Iron Man. He has become the man. Now remember, Robert Downey, if you go back a few more years, himself was involved in addiction and alcohol and drugs. And he was the pariah of Hollywood. No one would have anything to do with him. No one would touch him with a 10-foot pole except for one man. Only one man was willing to work with him in his life. And that man was Mel Gibson. I want you to watch this clip. See if you can hear everything. Actually, I asked Mel to present uh, this award to me for a reason. Because when I couldn't get sober, he told me not to give up hope. And he urged me to find my faith didn't have to be his or anyone else's as long as it was rooted in forgiveness. And I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him, and he kept a roof over my head, and he kept food on the table. And most importantly, he said that if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoings, and if I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, uh, hugging the cactus he calls it. He said that if I hugged the cactus long enough, I'd become a man of some humility and that my life would take on a new meaning. And I did, and it worked. Um, All he asked in return was that uh, someday I help the next guy in some small way. Uh, It's reasonable to assume that at the time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him. Or that someday was tonight. (laughs) So anyway, on this special occasion, and in light of the recent holidays, including Columbus Day, I humbly ask that you join me, unless you are completely without sin, in which case you picked the wrong industry, (laughs) in forgiving my friend his trespasses, offering him the same clean slate you have me, and allowing him to continue his great and ongoing contribution to our collective art without shame. He's hugged the cactus long enough. (laughs) Grace revealed is a marvelous, marvelous thing. You see, Robert gave up a key time in which he could congratulate himself and say how wonderful he was. And instead, he used that to introduce an opportunity to begin the forgiveness of Mel and for Mel to receive forgiveness in a very public way so they could start the journey that God desired for him to go on. You see, 
Grace is the responsive cry of God revealed from heaven, saying, you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And the wrath of God is the responsive cry of God, saying, you're a sinner who needs a Savior. I want you to understand that they're one in the same intention, the desire of God. And when you accept the truth, you recognize that you need to learn to listen to the voice. Only too often we find ourselves rejecting the voice of God and seeking a different one because we want one that's less demanding or at least less forceful and not so doggone truthful. Constantly calling us to be more than what we are this day. You see, this text exposes the dark side of human nature as the reasoning for God's cry against fallen man continues to build. And God is saying, you're getting worse, not better. You're going the wrong way. You're in a downward spiral that's going to lead to your ultimate destruction. The wrath of God is revealed. It's uncovered. It's brought to light in so many different ways. Revealed by divine law and natural consequences, by people's consciences in guilt, even in personal depression. And we begin to understand this world is built on a moral foundation that over the long run, life is better for the good and worse for the wicked. That if you choose to continue to pursue the path that's against what God has told you to be good, and instead choose to pursue the path of sin, you will receive the consequences. And you will not like them. Our suppression of truth for the lie, aletheia for pseudos, starts with rejecting the clear imprint of God within our being. You, you are made in the image of God. Psalm 139 reveals to us this uniqueness of who each one of us are, that God takes each person and specifically puts his imprint in special ways in your life, providing you with a purpose in this life here as short as it is and giving you opportunity to fulfill that purpose and the ability to fulfill that purpose. The imprint of God is within each one of us. And we're aware of him, but we must choose then, first of all, to reject him if we're going to accept the lie. This suppression of truth continues as sin always does. It's like a black hole. With our rejection of the clear evidence of God, which is explicit in his creation. So after we find ourselves going, I reject this God quirk within me that keeps crying out, there is a God. And he loves you and he cares about you. I reject this donut hole within me that says I need to be filled with something that I myself cannot provide. And then we move ourselves to the creation. And God says, look all around you. See what is here. Look what all I've provided for you. All this incredible creation that shows us a God of order and beauty and might. A God who controls powerful forces. I was in Brego Springs here just last week, spending some time alone with the Lord. And I, I, I went out each night at about 9.30 at night, which is late for me. Okay, so I get up very early. 
So I'm out about 9.30 at night, and I go and I park my car off in this area that we have some land at, and there is no light out there. And you pull the car in, and you shut it off, and it's like, it's dark. And then you look up, and you see so many stars. They are everywhere. And you just odd, and you go, that's the Milky Way. That's why they call it that. Look at that expanse. And you begin to look at the north. And it's, it's incredible. You view this and you go, wow, look what God has made. The wonder of his creation. But interestingly enough, while I was in town, I was unable to see this. I noticed after I come back here, I don't know about you guys here in Costa Mesa, You go out at 9.30 at night here, you know what you see? A few helicopters, uh, you know. Yeah, a couple stars here and there. It's like, okay, I know they're up there. But the light of this world obscures the light of God's creation. And stops us from seeing all that he wants to reveal to us. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen. I'm fully aware that we have a number of scientists who say there is no God and that the world that's around you is here by accident. There was no almighty hand who made a thousand billion stars and hundreds and millions of galaxies. It was an accident. The surface of our land just happened to have topsoil, without which we'd have no vegetables to eat and no grass for the animals that we also enjoy eating. The inexhaustible envelope of air only 50 miles deep and of exactly the right density to support human life is just an accident. We have day and night because the earth spins at a given speed without slowing down. And who made this arrangement up? It was an accident. The sun's fire does not generate too much heat so that we would fry, although if you're in Borrego, you might disagree with that statement. But just enough so that we don't freeze. The human heart will actually beat for 80 to 90 years without faltering. I want you to think about that. Some of you are going, no, Lee, more like 100. It's amazing. It keeps on going. It never stops. It never rests. Bum, 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 bum. I go, how can this be? How can this happen? Who gave the human tongue the flexibility to form words? And who gave us a brain to understand them? And all this complexity and this exactness that's accidentally provided for us, Robert Jastrow, who's an astrophysicist who worked as director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, said, so as I said, not all scientists agree. Okay. Now we see something amazing, that the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in this astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are essentially the same. Now, consider the enormousness of this problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain point. It asked, what cause produced this effect? Who or what 
put the matter and the energy into the universe. And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of natural reason, the story is ending like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. That's what's happening. In the beginning, the uncaused cause, he who was always and always will be, created the heavens and the earth and created them in such a way there could be no question, no doubt whatsoever that the creator exists as involved in his creation. He's revealed by this general revelation and then special revelation. God doesn't just stop there. He himself comes down and he speaks to us on a regular basis and then he sends his son to clarify exactly who he is and what this is all about. And then lastly, he sends the Holy Spirit so each one of us personally can experience the truth of God as he speaks to us if we're willing to listen. And as you receive this wondrous grace that the Holy Spirit provides... He also gives you the ability and the opportunity to act on the truth that he lays before you and says, here is how you should live. The responsive cry of God. But then there's a reactive cry of man, as we've already encountered it somewhat today. Here he says, for although they knew God, they knew of him, they recognized what was going on, they saw the design, they neither glorified him as God, and they didn't give thanks to him, but instead their thinking became foolish or futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. The silence and invisible response of God to the rejection is futility and foolishness. So we see this downward spiral of man he talks about. How it's a slow fade as we begin to reject God and what he has revealed to us. We refuse to act on the clear knowledge of God and we begin to lead ourselves away from the truth of who God is and how he deals with us and how he desires to encounter us. You see, we were designed, we were created to love, to worship God, to honor him, to recognize his blessings in our life, but instead we reject God from his due place in life. And instead of worshiping the creator, we begin to worship the creation. Myself. It's all about me. And we reject God as God. I was recently listening to an interaction by Dr. Richard Dawkins, who is kind of the self-proclaimed hero of evolution. And he said this, If evolution is not true, then it seems likely that we are what is left of a seeding from another group of superior beings. Now, if you don't understand what that means, what, he, what he's saying is that, well, then some highly evolved beings must have stopped off on our planet and dropped some eggs. And that's how we came about. Now, he said, I don't, I don't really believe that. He says, I desire that idea there, although over the thought that God is actually real. And the presentation of Genesis is laid out. So then he delivers these words. That designer that you talk about may well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. 
But then that higher intelligence would itself had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. He couldn't have just spontaneously jumped into existence. And that's my point. But folks, let me explain to you something. There must be an uncaused cause. There must be a beginning, just as there will be an end. We understand this truth. So we cry out, we say, who is the uncaused God? And God says, I am. I am. I am. And Jesus responds in like manner. And begins to guide us concerning life. We reject God as God and we start to make up our own God. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. You see this, our doctorates, and as we gain more and more in our knowledge and intelligence, we become fools. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. So we make God into ourself. We decide that God didn't do a very good job of being God. So we make up our own ideas of God's and how we would express our belief. Now, even some of the Hollywood people have had fun with this one. And so they've come up with a variety of, of films that are kind of fun. And they talk about, well, how does God do this? And this is crazy and you couldn't handle it this way. And how would anybody do this? But the religious groups among us begin to make up a God who is kind of a, a cafeteria-style God. He, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, and Woohoo! There we go. Hey, and so we, you know, well, we don't like that part. Toss it. We don't like that part. Toss it. We don't like this part. Toss. It. So we'll have a little bit of Buddha. Hey, we'll have a little bit of of Muhammad. We'll have a little bit of Jesus. We'll have, we'll have a little bit of everybody, and that'll make up this new interfaith God. Because after all, everybody, everybody, misunderstands who God truly is. It's all about loving one another and affirming each other regardless of what we do or don't believe. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. You see, this is God's consequence for those who choose to exchange the truth about God for a lie. Who take alathia and turn it into pseudos, fakeness, falseness. They worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Because the next thing we do is we start making up our own rules. Pretty soon we start saying, okay, we have these evolving rules. By the way, I've always found the rules that I made up before I was a Christian continue to evolve. I changed them according to the situation I found myself in. Whatever would benefit me became the new rule. That's how it begins to work in our lives. Whatever will benefit us is the new rule we set up or we think it will benefit us. God says it won't benefit you. It will destroy you. But it says God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. The women exchanged natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. They committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error for their error. So we have this new sexual morality. It's all about pleasure. It's all okay. We begin to invent ways to stop some of the consequences so we put together a birth control pill so that if I have sex with somebody, it's unlikely that they will get pregnant. Now, you could talk to my daughter about that. She had twins, 
while she was fully on. Yeah, we in fact, we haven't said about her on the birth control. We said, you know, she had the patch going on. We said, honey, you got to put it under the shirt. Which, you know, what can we say? We're having fun with her, but she's like your mom, very fertile. You know, I went, whoa, even birth control will not stop her from having children. We find ways to go against the directives that God has laid out for us, the truth that he has shown us. We find ourselves falling deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble. And we become more and more disgusting in our behavior as others look upon us. Now understand that Romans at this time, because this book is written to Rome, it's seen as kind of the creme la creme of the world. This is the establishment that put everything together. They are the military. Wow. They got it all. Billions and billions. They could wipe out the entire world in a second is what they feel like. They really can't, unlike the U.S. who actually could. But you again get the picture for us today. Rome is the place. But Rome is also seen as the place that has provided the greatest intellectual opportunity for mankind. In the midst of that, you have a variety of Greek philosophers who stand out from Plato's assertion that the greatest love is that between a man and a boy to the sexual flauntings of Caligula's orgies, the moral views have degraded to the place where nothing was wrong. Nothing was evil. Everything was okay. And that's the cry of Paul. What is happening to you? We're so much alike in our present declaration of superiority and sexual knowledge, we find ourselves receiving the same warnings from God. Look at these things here above here. The results we're seeing of, of God's wrath. And that which is invisible becomes visible. When we talk about sexually transmitted diseases in the U.S. alone, there were 2 million new cases in 2013. 2 million. HIV, there were 8 million people who were caught up in HIV in 1990. Now, many of you think, well, oh yeah, HIV is pretty much a done thing. There were 34 million people with HIV as of January of 2012. And the increase is exponential. The increase is exponential. Abortions in the U.S. since 1973, 57 million. 57 million abortions. God gave them over. He delivered them to freedom of choice. The entire fabric of biblical teaching proceeds from the assumption that sexual activity is to be enjoyed only within marriage, defined as a covenant union between one man and one woman. And any activity outside of that realm will bring about the wrath of God. It's not that he's mad at you. He's not. He's simply saying, there are moral laws that I've set up in the universe intentionally and specifically. And if you fail to follow those laws, you're going to receive the consequences. If you speed, eventually, you'll see the red lights. And you will be pulled over and asked for your license and registration to a person you don't know that you'd rather not meet again. That's the consequences. It's the wrath 
of God revealed from heaven. God gave them over, delivered them. The one who gives in to sexual temptation soon will learn this, that sin does not satisfy sexual desires. If there's nothing else you write down today, folks, I hope you would get that, that you would understand this simple truth. The one who gives in to sexual temptation will learn that sin does not satisfy sinful desires. It will not be satisfied. You will not get relief when you choose to be involved in that relationship. It will only get worse. It will only get worse. God's telling you. He's warning you. He's saying, don't. He gave us over to our lust. Not just our actions, but our desire for actions. And once that addiction is fed, it will either take us over or we, at some point in time we must stand against it and ask for God's help. And he will cry out to us and say these simple words, you've got to hug the cactus. You have to recognize that you are a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And then God will come down and he will gather you in his arms. And he'll pour out his grace into your life. And he'll renew you. And you'll begin again. But we get caught up in this stuff. We start making our own personal morality. We're not satisfied with just doing this sexual morality. We've got to get a personal morality. Furthermore, he says, just they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. God gave them over to a depraved, a broken mind. So that they would do what they ought not to be done. They become filled with all kinds of wickedness and evil and greed and hypocrisy. Depravity and envy and murder. Strife and deceit and malice. They're gossips and slanderers and God-haters and insolent and arrogant and boastful. And he's talking about you and me. He's saying, what are you doing? Why have you allowed yourself to go so far down? What's happening to you? Why are you rejecting the cry of God for your own cry? The invisible results of this responsive cry and reactive cry, drug use in the U.S. has escalated to an unbelievable degree. In 2012, 24 million or 10% of the population of the U.S. have used an illicit drug. And these are the ones we know about. It's far greater than that. They've abused a psychotherapeutic a type of medication the last month. Now, this has grown by a percentage in only a matter of a couple of years. In 2012, an estimated 23 million Americans needed treatment for a problem related to drugs or alcohol. I just want to say drugs because they're both the same. Just some we handle better than others. Some of us. Wow, what a struggle we have going on here. The things that are happening to us. A few years ago, Dr. Richard Leahy, a prominent psychologist and anxiety specialist, made this statement. This is frightening. I don't think it was up there. The average high school kid today, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. 
Folks, it's not limited to just that age group. 2007 New York Times reports, three in ten American women confess that they have to take a sleeping pill every night before they can go to sleep. 30% of the female population in the U.S. has to take a sleeping pill in order to get to sleep because of the anxiety. How many of you take a sleeping pill? Some of you are? Yeah, some of you tell me. I took one just a couple nights ago. It's not really a sleeping pill, but it kind of sort of is. one of those, you know, counter-medication things you're taking. Helps knock you out. I can only do a half of one because they kind of do a job on me. But I go, what was that about? Well, I just, I, my head's spinning. I'm thinking about all these things. Uh, anxiety. It's this, this sense of concern or worry. or what, and We're unable to sleep as God desires for us to unrest and trust in him. See, the numbers are so high that we're beginning to proclaim it and recognize it as epidemic. Epidemic. Now, at the same time that this comes out, there was another interesting study that was kind of pushed off to the side in relationship to the U.S. And that was the number of Americans claiming no religious affiliation. In 1990, it was 7%. In 2013, it had jumped to 20%. Among those who are under the age of 30, it is now 35%. Epidemic. No understanding. Our thoughts are not rational. We don't keep promises. We're covenant breakers. We no longer have love for one another and we show no mercy to those around us. And Paul ends this cry of God and cry of man with this statement. And if that was not enough, not only do they continue to practice these things that are destroying them, they applaud others who join them. They applaud others. The blind leading the blind. They applaud the darkness because then you can't see what's coming. They applaud the darkness because then you can't see what's going to happen. No stars. No truth. The light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming your way. Or as the famous doctor on television says regularly, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? Do you hear the cry? See the truth. Recognize the lie. And escape the wrath of God as you're hugged by the inexhaustible grace of Jesus that is so incredible that he never ever quits loving us and he says hey just come here it'll be okay let me show you the way that's Paul's cry to the Romans church he's pointing to the stars in the midst of the darkness He's saying, His grace is amazing. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might receive the righteousness 
of God. I'm a sinner set free by God's grace, but still easily held captive by my sin. And I cry for grace and I give out grace so that I might remain free. The righteous live by faith, not by judgment. So as we close up our time together, I want you just to think for this next three or four minutes about how wonderful and glorious our God is. And listen to his voice. Enjoy the wonder of God. His grace in our lives. His marvelous creation. As opposed to the wrath of God. For those who reject his clearly revealed truth. Let's finish up with this clip. And then I'll close this with the last comment.